Broadcasting from the commodity capital of the world, Zurich, Switzerland, this is Insider's Guide to Energy. This edition to Insider's Guide to Energy is brought to you by Fidectus. Go to www.fidectus.com for more information. Welcome to Insider's Guide to Energy. I'm your host, Chris Sass, and with me this week is Jeff Mangali as my co-host. Jeff, I am really excited about this week's show. We have RMI on the program. Tell me what you think we're going to talk about today, and where do we go with this episode? Well, Chris, I'm really excited. We've got new CEO, John Kreitz, at RMI. And what's wonderful about this is RMI covers so much ground that I'm not actually sure where this is going to go. And I'm excited because I don't know about that, but I'm sure that wherever we go, we're going to learn a ton on this show. Yeah, I I find RMI is extremely influential. It it really makes a big difference. I've been on panels with RMI in the past at shows, and I really want to hear where they're going. So rather than you and I going back and forth, why don't you bring your guest on, Jeff? Yes, so this... uh, Gentlemen, John Kreitz, he's been at RMI for over a decade. He's taken over the leadership as CEO, but has a deep and extensive career in the sector. He's an engineer by training, started off actually at Lockheed Martin, started off at Lockheed Martin in their famous Skunk Works program, and spent over a decade at McKinsey, including some of their pioneering cost of abatement work. So I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit at the end. But let's hear it from the man himself. John, welcome to the show. Jeff, Chris, delighted to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Um, Really uh, humbled that you hold our institute in such high esteem. Uh, But we're doing what we can at this moment. Uh, So critical, so critical for us to solve the energy transition right now. John, catch us up a little bit because I think I keep seeing more and more out of RMI. So I've, I've lost track of all of the different things that you do. Help us understand, how do you frame the mission of RMI? Where are you guys in terms of the, the number of employees, number of initiatives? How do you characterize uh, where you are as an organization? Yeah, Jeff, so 40-year-old organization, right, founded by Amory Lovins. We've, you know, our mission maintains and is to secure a clean, prosperous, zero carbon future for all, right? And we've grown over the years, right? Now we're about 700 people. We're working in 62 countries right now. Uh, And we try to do two things exceptionally well. One is deep decarbonization of the physical assets, right? When you think about the electricity grid, or you think about the Uh, industrial sector, built environment, transportation and mobility, right? RMI knows the techno-economics of how exactly we get to a low-carbon system in each of those areas. And then we also, we have, you know, kind of a number of what we call global catalysts, which are cross-cutting ways that we act on the system to help drive, uh, drive change in each one of those areas. And those are things like 
climate finance, right? How do we mobilize capital at scale uh, to get to the three to $5 trillion we're gonna need this year and every year, right, to make this transition happen? Breakthrough technology, right? We, we have lots off the shelf that we can get started with right now, but we need answers to green steel and, and you know, kind of long duration storage and many other things out there. So how do, we, how do we make sure they're coming to market as quickly as possible? Climate intelligence, right? We need, we have more data than ever. We need to organize that, be able to understand where emissions are coming from and animate markets around that. And then also we think a lot about, you know, kind of leadership capacity and how do we make sure that there is, you know, kind of not just the leadership vision, but the, the capability to lead low and middle income communities and countries into the next energy transition without traversing through, you know, kind of carbon intensive development. So those are all, all things that RMI does. We wrap it in a, you know, kind of a, an exciting package. We try to communicate uh, as, a, as an independent voice um, and speak truth to power wherever we can, right? Um, uh, we try to be creative in how we engage market systems to really drive the, the solutions at scale. Because we do believe, you know, kind of a well-directed market is the fastest way for us to solve and address this climate crisis. Before we move on and go into the technology and, and more of what you're doing, you, you just gave very a lot that you guys do. There, there's quite a bit in unwrapping what you just said. Um, maybe help the audience understand, because I, I clearly know who RMI is. I, as you could tell, we, the respect and the passion we have for RMI having you on the show. But what exactly is RMI and, and who are your customers and what do you actually do? Yeah, so we're... I think you would call us a, a think, do, and now we've added scale tank to it, right? A think, do, scale is kind of how RMI really uh, works in the world. And we're an independent nonprofit, right? So we're, we're trying to work in the middle of systems between the public and private space, including our other NGO partners, to apply acupuncture and unstick systems, right? To help capital flow more quickly, to help ideas flow more quickly, so that we can realize, you know, kind of the energy transition at scale. And we're always focused on, you know, kind of the value that's created in the process and making sure that, and not just, you know, kind of financial value, but equity emerges in the process as well as we migrate to a much more sustainable energy economy. One example of this, John, that I think captures it for me are things like what has become the Clean Energy Buyers Alliance. So this is an example where there's a, a challenge. We want more corporates to be able to purchase renewable energy and there need to be innovative approaches. Can you use that as a thread of where RMI played a role in the, the genesis and growth of that as an organization? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a great example that speaks a little bit to how RMI addresses these types of challenges, right? If you look... Uh, 10 years ago, right, there was only one, one major corporation that was able to purchase uh, power directly, clean power directly from the market. And that was Google, right? And they invested heavily in a few power purchase agreements to try and figure out how to do that. And they struggled, right? And RMI saw this and also heard many other corporations saying, we'd like to, we'd like to be able to purchase clean renewables directly. Help us do that. And so RMI pulled together the start of the Clean Energy Buyers Alliance and started building up, you know, kind of some of the capacity within the procurement functions of large organizations for how, how do you think about, you know, 
not not buying, you know, kind of pencils and, and you know, ship truckloads of equipment, but but instead forward strips of energy, right? How do you manage the risk around that? How do you think about procuring? Then, uh, you know, simultaneously kind of building up of both a developer market alongside a, a buyer's market so that we had a conversation that was happening between those that were engaged and then the intermediaries in the system. We started, you know, kind of holding regular meetings to, to bring these groups together and tackle real problems like standardized contracts and move from PPAs to virtual power or power purchase agreements and, and innovated you know, contracts for differences together. And RMI kind of held the center of this, this uh, kind of body until it had the capability to stand up on its own. Uh, you know, we did this alongside all the partners involved and now it stands as the largest corporate buyers group uh, in the world, right? With over 300 different companies involved and engaged, purchasing, you know, up to half of the, the new clean energy uh, contracted in the United States is, is being purchased directly from corporations. And that stands to, you know, kind of a decade of stewardship and experience where RMI was consistently, uh, you know, kind of in the middle, helping build this entity, and then ultimately, helping spin it out so that it could stand on its own and kind of be fit for purpose in uh, propelling corporations toward their ability to, to, to engage and, and progress, you know, kind of the clean energy transition. John, that, that is, it's amazing. First of all, that kind of initiative progression and launch would be the crowning achievement of any organization and it's one of a seemingly endless lists. I want to say about a, a dozen initiatives that you're doing. And what's so amazing about I'll riff on Steba as an example, because it's one that I'm familiar with. It's a balance of listening to the market, but it's also has this nudging. You're not just listening. It's, it's, you know, if you listen to what the customer wants, they'll tell you, you know, they want a faster horse and you're bringing them a car. It's, there's a nudging of, Yes, we hear what you need today, but here's where you need to go. And doing that in a collaborative but directed mechanism. And what strikes me is also the entrepreneurial nature of the organization, because it's not just this initiative. It's, it's many other. I want to give you a chance to talk about some others uh, that are earlier in their stage of progression that you're proud and excited about. And then after that, want to also come back to this entrepreneurial nature that seems to pervade the organization. But what other initiatives are, are coming up? Yeah, so one that, that started just a couple of years ago, literally we launched it right the week before COVID started, is our third derivative initiative, which is really focused on how do we move, you know, breakthrough technologies to scale faster. And the, the typical Silicon Valley venture capital model just doesn't work in, in hard tech and clean tech, right? We need to have longer, uh, uh, you know, kind of investment timeframes. We need to have ways to de-risk, you know, physical hardware and the growth in the market. And we certainly, we saw in 2008, 2009, how we really stubbed our toe when we tried to apply the, the Silicon Valley capital model to clean energy, because it led to a lot of disappointment and frankly, a lot of uh, destruction of value in the process. But we know that, that it, as we kind of meet the challenge right now, we can move capital faster and there are strategic 
uh, ways to do so. So RMI is built, you know, similar to, to um, SIBA, we've built an ecosystem approach that incorporates, yes, venture capital. Um, and we've got about 20 different venture capital firms that we're working with, but also other forms of capital and project-based finance and equity along the way. We've, we've built a community of corporations, right, that are aggressive in their climate goals and are looking for new technologies and interested in being, uh, you know, coaches and first customers, but also investors and acquirers of these businesses, right? We've built then the world's largest network of startups, right, and have, have got to a point where we're producing and pulling in uh, 15 to 25 new startups every quarter um, that are feeding into this system and kind of helping to move them faster through the system so that instead of it being a random walk of 12 or 15 years for a, a successful company, and there aren't many of those, right, to make it through, that we can kind of put a tractor beam on the, the likely winners or winning categories and pull them through in five, six, seven years from, you know, kind of, prototype and first customer all the way through to market scalability. And we're super excited about the different technologies that we're using, um, we've, uh, or that we're, we're kind of engaged with. And we've taken a very thesis-driven approach as well, where we're taking individual technologies like direct air capture and saying, okay, what do we need to do to move from, you know, kind of $600 per ton uh, down to $100 per ton and what are the different categories of solutions that we can envision meeting at scale and accelerating entrepreneurs in those areas alongside others like Grantham, like, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, the, some of the key early stage investors that are, are excited about, um, you know, promoting these types of critical climate solutions and getting them to scale quickly. Uh, you, you mentioned all kinds of projects in, in this kind of hyperspeed. In order to do that, you have to attract some amazing talent because your, your thesis is being made by somebody and executed by somebody to help them. Where are you finding the kind of talent? I mean, you said you had 700 folks in your organization, um, but this is different what you're talking about. If I'm going to hyperspeed and make a bet on a, a new and emerging technology, where is this talent coming from? And what's different between some of the pro programs, maybe the government's running for longer term funding or things they're doing in Colorado where you are in Golden there? Um, how are you different than some of these other programs? Yeah, I, you know, I do have to go back to our heritage, right? We were founded by Amory Lovins, who is just a, an amazing visionary. And he's, he's a bit of the professor's professor, right? And for, for 45, 50 years, he's been going around the world uh, you know, as a bit of a prophet and spreading the message, writing amazing books, not just reinventing fire, but, you know, natural capital, capitalism, uh, you know, winning the oil endgame, et cetera. And when, when, you know, kind of the engineers and the architects and the entrepreneurs and the business leaders and the scientists think about, you know, kind of, and, and uh, are early in their exploration of the, the energy transition and how they fit into it, they always come across Amory. And every, every person at RMI, virtually to a T, has their Amory story, right, of when they were first exposed to him. And that magnetism here, you know, and alongside the amazing work that we're doing out there on a day-to-day -day basis, really has become a huge attractor and created a gravitational pull for RMI that I, I have to see, say I'm just humbled to experience, um, you know, uh, for, for our summer associate position here a year ago, we had 
3,100 applications for 35 positions, right? Which was just absolutely staggering, mind blowing, you know, when you think about that. Um, we're, we're fortunate to be in the position that we are, but at the same moment, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see this level of talent, whether they're inside RMI or beyond RMI, focused on this issue right now because we need it, right? It is a, we're in a planetary emergency right now, and the fact that the best minds in the world are focused on energy should be invigorating, exciting for us all. And that's where, you know, kind of hope and optimism. And at RMI, we, we think about applied hope, right? We think about it's not enough to be hopeful that we really have to work to will into existence that world that we so desperately want and need, right? And that, that in the process of doing so together, we actually create the world being worth being hopeful for, right? That, that is RMI. That's what attracts people to us, but that's also the exciting you know, solution for us as a planet that we all have to help realize, activate, activate and you know, kind of uh, mobilize at this, at this critical moment. I love that applied hope. I'm going to use that. That's uh, very, very practical and, and pragmatic, but also an optimistic take. And going to keep coming back to this theme of, of balance. So you're attracting deep technical expertise, but also have an awareness of the financial side. You mentioned techno-economic analysis. And it's miraculous to think of an organization that can launch something like SIBA, which is very corporate and procurement focused, but then turn around and also launch something like third derivative, which is much earlier stage, different type of capital, uh, entrepreneurial. Can you tell me a little bit more about the process internally that fosters so many ideas, but doesn't get pulled apart by trying to chase too many at the same time? Yeah, um, this is something <laughs> you're hitting on both the magic and the challenge that I have as a CEO, right? Um, because uh, RMI, we have inherently curious people on staff, right? And we try to, to support and create entrepreneurial room for them to investigate ideas and take them further. At the same time, you know, as we grow, if we have too many people moving in different directions, you wind up not being able to create the impact at scale that's really required. And and this moment, right, where we are right now requires impact at scale. And so I've I've really challenged our team on how do we ensure that there is both that balance of entrepreneurialism and focus. And what we've come up with in over the last six months is, is really 19 big areas that we as an institute feel like we can push the global dialogue on, we can push global markets on and have a substantial impact in the next three years. And they range from, from things like, you know, kind of electrifying two and three wheelers in the global South. And how do we get them to be commonplace uh, across more and more markets? Because the economic case is there, uh, you know, but the supply chains and the policies need to be built up to help them, you know, compete at scale through to, you know, kind of more traditional areas like zero net zero buildings and how exactly we accelerate some of the policies in target targeted areas like, uh, um, you know, kind of the United States uh, and and Europe to things like um, you know kind of making sure that IRA the Inflation Reduction Act is as successful as possible because now that the United States has taken the position and and really put some political heft behind it it has to be successful right we have to see the projects emerge uh, and and the showcases emerge that 
convince capital around the world that this is the smart bet, right? That this is the way of the, the future. And so RMI is involved and engaged in each of those. And we have kind of taken the organization and said, be entrepreneurial within these specific areas. And in the next three years, let's make sure we get each of them to a tipping point that we have clearly defined, you know, as part of how it is we kind of marry that creativity with discipline. And that's that's always a challenge for for large organizations. And I, you know, I think I have to, as much as I like to think of RMI as a feisty, you know, kind of uh, small organization, we are, we are officially in the big NGO space right now, or a bingo. Uh, most recently, I've heard somebody call us that. And, and I have to, I have to own up to our, our size and half tier and recognize though, but, but that is the challenge for us. It is about, you know, balance, but being able to direct and, and deliver, right? Are you noticing changes? So I just literally came back from Europe, moved back to the U.S. And in Europe, uh, renewable energy is not so much a fad. It's something that's been going on for some period of time. And culturally, it's very different once I got back home, right? There, there, there's, there's not the same love. There's some that are disbelievers and things like that. Have you seen a, a pivot point or a change in the last couple of years that, that people are now serious about climate change and that the energy market changing? I mean, we see the government getting behind it, but are you seeing it across the board? Yeah, I, I really do. You know, I travel the world. I literally just circumnavigated the world, visiting all different economies around the world. And I, I do think the United States is a bit of a, it's a, it's a separate case, right? As we think about where we are relative to where the rest of the world is, um, because we're so mired in politics around climate change. And if we stop talking about climate change in the United States and we start talking about the energy transition, I think you're seeing a lot more hope and support there, right? You're seeing, uh, uh, you know, kind of in Georgia, massive uh, construction of new battery facilities, new solar facilities, new EV facilities. You're seeing Houston embrace uh, hydrogen at scale, right? You're seeing Southern California, you know, kind of not just move within uh, uh, kind of the space of uh, constraint and thinking about emissions, but now starting to think about green shipping corridors and and you know uh, uh, having um, uh, carbon capture and storage equipped cement facilities and things like that that are changing the dialogue and making this both not not necessarily about climate but about you know kind of industry about global competitiveness about um, you know, kind of places again where the United States can can be a leader, and that's exciting. And it's it is shifting uh, the dialogue. So long as we stay away from the the politically charged rubric around climate change, and I'm not I'm not saying we shouldn't be aware of climate change. We've just you know finished the hottest July on record, probably the hottest July we have seen since our species existed on the planet, right? And that should give us all pause, but. In the United States, right, uh, this particular uh, uh, conversation needs to be about jobs. It needs to be about resiliency. It needs to be about, you know, kind of leading and developing new markets. And all of those are true for the energy transition right now. John, you've outlined a global mission, but I want to bring up another tension here, which is you've also talked about the IRA, U.S. as a global leader building jobs at home. So how much do you think about your mission 
as that global helping each country around the world develop versus a more US-centric America as a leader in the sector? And do you find that as a tension? Yeah, we... So one, we certainly see ourselves as a global institution, right? Not beholden to international politics. I myself spent, uh, you know, the better part of a decade working with China on their energy transition. Um, we working alongside the senior leaders from 2012 to 2016 in particular, helping to uh, shift dramatically the aspirations around the 13th five-year plan, which was when China, you know, kind of shifted from, from coal dramatically toward renewables. We're doing the same thing in India right now, right? When we think about partnering with senior uh, uh, ministries there, um, uh, Niti Ayog, the planning commission, we work very closely with, we work closely with other ministries in housing and development alongside many of the leading companies um, to help enable and support the transition. I was just in Indonesia, right? Meeting with senior ministers there, helping them work through the challenges of, you know, kind of having an overbuilt coal fleet and needing to transition to lower cost renewables and how that happens, thinking about, you know, kind of the advent of electric vehicles and how to build up supply chains there. These are all things that RMI engages on. And we do so with an eye towards supporting the world, right? We're, we're in it for the planet, right? We're thinking about how do we make sure that we as a species don't destroy ourselves here, right? That we ensure that this transition provides the maximum benefit for everyone. And, and I do, you know, in right now, when I look at where we are in the energy transition, I am more and more confident that we're going to get to net zero, right? We're going to get to net zero for half the planet by 2050. But for half the planet right now, there is not a pathway to net zero. And if we don't all get to net zero by 2050, we all lose. So, so we have to redouble and figure out financial flows to the global south. We have to figure out ways to move technology faster. We have to figure out ways to share right in, in the overall resource, resources that we have right now as we create more abundance going forward, even if we've hit bottlenecks in global supply chains, et cetera. And that's, that's where RMI, again, acting as that independent NGO can really step in and with our techno-economic expertise, with our, you know, kind of thinking and doing uh, duality can help make things happen. They really showcase what good collaboration looks like, what solutions are possible, how to get them to scale quickly. That's what my organization tries to do. It's a really unifying message. And it's really refreshing to hear you articulate that. We're all in this together, right? And you've got the uh, uh, applied hope and we've all got a piece of the puzzle. That's a, a really inspiring message. You also mentioned some concerning notes and, and we were talking about tipping points. So I'd love to hear from you what you're most concerned about. You mentioned the hottest July on record. We're seeing record uh, North Atlantic sea surface temperatures. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what, the, what you're concerned about and then want to also let you balance that out with your uh, applied hope message. What are the things that you're most excited about on the optimistic side? Yeah, I, you know, I think what should be disconcerting for everyone, hottest July, right? All the different warning signs that we're seeing in current flows, uh, in glacial melts, in methane releases from northern latitudes, et cetera, that all suggest that we're hitting tipping points faster 
and earlier than we would have expected in the global environment, which means we've got less and less time, right? The, the World Meteorological Organization just upgraded a, a month or two ago its estimate that, you know, kind of within the next five years, there's a two-thirds chance that one of those five years will be at or above one and a half degrees Celsius increase, even if temporarily. And so that says we're, we're knocking on the door right now and we need to mobilize at scale. And that right now, there's a, there is a, a fractured politics globally, right, that is challenging our ability to move at scale. And the more that, that China is isolated, right, the more that, that we are not, you know, kind of engaging holistically against this problem as one planet, the more challenges we have, right? Um, we, we need to agree in the end that, uh, you know, solving a, comp a problem as complex as this requires uh, unity and purpose. And, and that is, uh, you know, is, hasn't yet arrived. And so that, that, I would say, is a big challenge. When I think about what's hopeful, right, as, a, as an institute that, that thinks a lot about the economics and markets, we're in a position right now where solar and wind, right, are on exponential declines. They have been growing cheaper and cheaper, you know, year by year. And they're now cheaper than, uh, cheaper for 95% of the people on the planet as the next new form of energy, right? They'll be cheaper for 100% of the people on the planet very soon. And shortly thereafter, they'll be cheaper as the marginal, the total cost of renewables will be cheaper than the marginal cost of New, of oil or of gas or of coal-fired generation on most of the planet, right? That's, the economics are in our favor. That is an amazing tailwind at our backs. Same thing is happening, you know, kind of with, when we think about batteries and electric vehicles growing exponentially, uh, or very early stage, but hydrogen electrolyzers starting to move exponentially at scale, right? Look at heat pumps, moving, you know, kind of non-linearly, need to get them faster. Certainly, you know, Europe is helping lead the charge there, but the new models are coming in with staggering efficiencies that start to be retrofitable in many cases, you know, with much shorter paybacks than we've ever had in the past. So the economic system is shifting um, in dramatic ways, but, but we've got to break habits, right? And it's tough to break habits. It's tough when we're in our you know, the convenience of our life and we know what it means to engage with energy in a certain way at the pump or paying a utility bill, we don't think about change and we don't necessarily want to add that to all the other things that we need to do. So we need to make it as easy as possible. And again, that's what, what RMI is working to do is to make these choices, not really choices at all, but just the natural way of doing things because of the favorable economics, because of the better world they lead to, right? And, and I think we've all got to recognize that, that it's not just better for the environment to drive an electric vehicle, they're, they're actually more fun, right? They're, they perform better and, and in all different ways, you don't have to you know, kind of depend on a, a going to a dirty gas station or, or a host of other things. You know, a, an electric stove, has very precise ability to boil water for 10 minutes and then turn itself off. Um, you know, and as we, we think about things like that, we can expect that the innovation is going to keep propelling us toward not just the answer, but toward better answers. I think what, what you said that resonates with me is the economics, right? So as an American, 
I look at the world as, as free market and economic, right? And, and, you know, if you look at solar, I think even though corporates had sustainability goals long before it got so popular, it wasn't until behind the meter really saved you money that it really took off. And if I look at mainstream, I think when it's more cost effective to have an electric car because your total cost of ownership may be less, um, yeah, that makes sense. And people start looking at that, right? I, I think the economics drive a lot of the behavior to change. So I, I tend to agree with that. And then, you know, I guess that aligns with what the, you were talking about, helping jumpstart companies that had technology cycles so that there are options at scale in the market, um, heat pumps, housing, things that are really inefficient that make a big hit for energy. Those are things that, that I like to see. Um, what's a pet project that you've seen or you see in the near horizon that you're excited about that maybe we don't all know about or maybe we do know about it, but you're, you're really bullish about? Yeah, I, I, I mean, Chris, if we go back to this idea that economics win the day in the end, right? And if we can just change things quick enough, one of the one of the real areas of of uh, potential right now that that we're focused on is two and three wheeler electrification, right? Um, because it's about a quarter the cost overall per kilometer per passenger kilometer to drive an electrified two or three wheeler than it is to drive a an internal combustion engine one. And, and you get all the benefits that these, these vehicles are used in urban environments and you get rid of the particulate and air pollution locally and, and all sorts of other things. But, but the supply chains aren't built up um, uh, and the awareness isn't there. And so when we think about, and, and you know, when we think about electrification of vehicles too, it's, it's happened very much with the Tesla top-down model, right? Where it was always the, mo- the people who can afford it the most were the first the first users. But in this case, it's actually the people who can, the people who are going to benefit the most starts from the bottom of the pyramid upward. And so we've been working in India to help drive and seed a two and three wheeler market at scale there. Um, We created a program called Shunya, which means zero in Sanskrit, um, and have been working alongside the government and now about uh, 150 different companies ranging from you know, rideshare companies like Uber and Ola through to, to uh, delivery companies like Amazon or Flipkart that are working alongside us to create urban deliveries um, and make sure that, that as a high-use segment, whether it be a package or a person, that in urban cores in India, they're being delivered by zero-carbon resources. Last year, when we launched the program, our first year, we had $150 million zero carbon deliveries, right, that are now growing. The, the program has uh, just been, uh, you know, kind of launched its second year with a, a big brand video, and it's going out to beyond a few major cities in India, out more broadly across each of the states. And we see that as a model that isn't just for India, but can easily move into Southeast Asia, can easily move into Sub-Saharan Africa. And so we're working with and and alongside governments and, and leading companies in Nigeria, you know, kind of in Indonesia and Vietnam, in, you know, kind of the rapidly emerging areas so that we not only seed the, the idea of low carbon transportation, but we also, you know, one of the elegant ele- elements of this solution is that you can build small supply chains here that allow for uh, local industrialization in the process. And, and that then, you know, kind of has a virtuous cycle of, of creating diversified supply chains here globally um, for manufacturing and brings more green jobs, 
to more of the world for more benefit. That's that's you know kind of one exciting area that that um, uh, that I'd love to share. You know, I can go into on the the IRA side, right? But coming back to the United States here, we're we're tracking about three quarters of a trillion dollars worth of investments between the Texas Gulf Coast and Southern California of new projects that are coming into being right now. And we're already working with 22 of them specifically on things like green ammonia plants, on uh, building out electrified freight corridors and drayage systems, on sustainable aviation fuel at airports, right? And we're seeing, you know, kind of large scale developments and helping sit between the corporate uh, owners, the investors, the the city uh, and town councils, the community-based organizations, and helping move that wheel a little bit faster so that each of these projects gets to final investment decision and puts real money down to really start building. And already we're seeing that construction happen. So, you know, kind of moving from two disparate parts of the world, we're we're both participating in and seeing these types of large scale shifts. And that that for me is exciting. It's exciting to think about RMI's role in it, but even more exciting to see the real, to see the real physical change happen. John, it's hard to imagine somebody more seamlessly going from two-wheeled electric mobility in Indonesia to sustainable aviation fuel to moving away from coal in China, and you you cover it so effortlessly. We have to talk about your background. How did you get here that you can so easily cover really global, multi-sector, multi-asset, techno-economic topics? Tell us a little bit about your formative experiences, whether that's McKinsey or early RMI, that helped get you to this position? Yeah, um, I so I was... I'm one of eight kids, right? And my father, my father was an engineer. My mother was an artist, but my father was in the energy industry. So I, I kind of had a, a jump up on it very early on, even if he was building coal plants and nuclear plants and thinking about those types of things. It was part of my, you know, kind of my early consciousness. But it really, you know, I, I took on the engineering mantle. I learned how things work technically. Um, you know, my time at the Skunk Works was phenomenal that you referenced, right? Being able to see what technology could do. Um, you know, I was using 3D printers in 20, uh, in 1992, right? To build prototype aircraft. And just having that window into what exactly you could do was, was quite extraordinary. But I did, you know, I, I decided early on that I really wanted to, to focus on climate change and that, that, that was a critical issue. I did my graduate work at Berkeley on, on circularity. And I, I, I joined McKinsey really thinking that I was going to be there for a couple of years to get the equivalent of an MBA after I finished my PhD because I just couldn't see myself going to school any longer. Um, and I wound up staying there for a dozen years because there was such a rich opportunity to engage business and leadership on these issues. And I, I didn't realize that, you know, rather than building my own consultancy, I could essentially build the climate change practice within McKinsey and worked alongside many super talented people to do so, um, uh, you know, and yes, did the original McKinsey cost curve 
um, which was a, a helpful framing, I think, at the very right moment when we were all debating Waxman Marquis here in the United States and other things that helped frame the issue of where exactly, if you have to take carbon out of the economy, where do you look and how much can you get at what cost? And that, that kind of propelled my thinking a lot about where and how I wanted to impact. And I, I had met Amory back in 1991. I had a fantastic advisor uh, in, in my undergraduate, a gentleman named Clark Bullard, uh, who's just amazing. And he, he said, Amory's coming to campus. You've got to hear him. And, and he was right, right? Amory has a different way of thinking about things. And he rearranged my mental furniture of, of what's possible right? Um, and, and how exactly you drive change in the world. And so when I finally, you know, kind of recognized that I really wanted to devote all of my time to climate change, uh, rather than all the different things that a management consultant has to responsibility for, I, I reunited with Amory. And since then, we've been trying to build the institute that can respond to this moment, right? And, and really help drive what I know best, right? The techno-economic side, uh, at scale globally and provide, you know, not just the passion, but the, the detailed insights and, and information, the, the change models, the, the, the capacity to dialogue, you know, kind of critically and align people against objective outcomes that RMI, you know, so well embodies. When you think about the cost of abatement curves, we're coming up on 20 years, maybe? I mean, what? pretty close to that, right? 2007 was kind of, yeah, okay. so it's, it, but, yeah. but you're right. Yeah, no, it's, we're 16, 17 years, right? So it's, it's, um, it's been a while. So what do you think when you look back on that work today? Do you feel, I feel like it's held up pretty well? Are we, are we inching along? Are we moving the axes? Uh, what do you think when you look back on that original work? Yeah, I so you know, there's a certain amount of of regret, right, when I look at it because we we had the the roadmap then that could have averted some of the warming, some of the catastrophes, some of the the issues that we're seeing now and um if only, right? If only we had been able to galvanize and get people to act on it, it would have been much easier um what we're facing right now. Uh you know, there were things about the cost curve that were spot on, right? And we've, we've done a better job capturing energy efficiency, for instance, than most people realize. Um, uh, uh, we still have plenty to go. You know, it's a, it's a renewable resource in itself that there's every time you, you capture some, you realize there's much more there. Um, but, but there were other areas that, you know, frankly, we got wrong. We, we expected cellulosic to be able to move at scale much faster than it did. Right. And uh, it got mired and I we have not hit, you know, kind of the scale and capacity on that front. On the other hand, other things that we got wrong to the the uh, positive side. Right. We McKinsey was quite conventional in its view uh, on solar uh, electric electrification of vehicles, wind, you know, kind of the limits have far been exceeded. Um, and and so while those are helpful calibration points in history, I think we have to recognize that time and time again, you know, kind of most markets follow an S-curve, most markets exponentiate, right? And we, you know, again, back to what's giving me hope right now, we're in that exponential moment, right? We are seeing 
the economics tip. We're seeing, you know, we're feeling the supply chain constraints because the demand is so high. Um, and we're seeing, uh, you know, kind of the potential solutions emerge forward. And those, those should be signs of hope for all of us, um, uh, you know, because in, in moments of great challenge, I, I believe fundamentally that we all can rise to greatness. And that's, that is what's going to solve the climate crisis, you know, whether it be in the global north, the global south, whether it be in, in China, in the United States, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, we are, we're facing it right now. And yes, we can uh, harness ingenuity to, to get there, right? Especially because we know, we know so much about what the toolkit is to do so. So you mentioned the challenge. You talk about an optimistic picture, perhaps, that this can, can be achieved. Now, if I were a 20-something looking to make my mark on the world, and you, you talked about 32 openings and thousands of folks applying, so there seems to be pent-up demand for young folks that want to be in this game. What's your advice for early career folks and how they make an impact over their career if they're just starting out now? Yeah, um, uh there is so much opportunity, right? And I I look at it from a you know from a career perspective. There is not an industry or an issue that is more rewarding and more in demand, more in need right now than how exactly we manage this energy transition. Um, it is you know when you look at the sheer size of it, um, we have never as a as a species gone through the level of economic opportunity, the level of uh, reconstruction, you know, that we're going to go through. And so as an early stage career person, I would see this as unlimited opportunity, right? So then, then the question is, you know, kind of uh, how do I engage with it? And I, I firmly believe that experience uh, informs, right? It informs, success that informs passion and in, informs direction. Um, and so less important than finding the perfect place is finding a place to step in and contribute. And as you do, you're going to find and learn more and more about you, more and more about the system, more and more about where your unique capability and capacity fits within and can drive change. And that each one of us, right, has that unique role to play somewhere in the system and it is about locating and finding that, uh, you know, kind of um, in your own time. But but don't take too long at it because, you know, we've got a planet that's on fire right now. John, this has been an amazing conversation. I, I really appreciate your message of applied hope. We're not ignoring the signals around us, but fundamentally rejecting doomerism and taking a unified view on a global basis that's multi-sectoral, that's collaborative between the technical and the finance and the corporate, and really weaving that all together. Uh, I can't imagine a better guide for us on that journey, and we're so grateful that you've spent the time with us today. Uh, really appreciate you uh, joining us in this conversation. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Chris. It's been a delight. Um, thank you for the great work that you do helping get the messages out there, helping engage in critical dialogue with everyone as we, as we rise to this moment. Um, you have a critical role to play, and we're happy to support uh, and appreciate the partnership. Thanks so much. 
Thank you, John. Our audience, we hope you've enjoyed this content as much as we have. It's been an amazing journey. The conversation's been fun. If you like this content and want to hear more, please subscribe, follow us, find us on YouTube, find us wherever you get your podcasts, and we're going to see you again next week. Bye-bye.